0: Hey, everybody. It's another serious week at Serious Trouble. This is Josh Barrow. We are back taping five days after our last episode, and there's been a lot of developments in both of the federal cases against Donald Trump in Washington, D.C. and in Florida. We have a very interesting conversation for you, and part of it is behind the paywall, including our whole discussion about the Florida case before Judge Eileen Cannon. She's issued her first kind of spicy order that might indicate some displeasure with prosecutors, and, and Ken takes that seriously but is not as alarmed about it as a lot of other commentators. Uh, So far, the things that Judge Cannon has asked prosecutors for are reasonable, and we'll have to see what she does when prosecutors provide quite possibly very reasonable responses of their own to her request to explain why stuff should be under seal and what it is that they're still doing with this grand jury that's outside her district. So anyway, we have a conversation about that. We also have a conversation about Harvard Business School and allegedly fraudulent psychology research. You may have seen this story about Professor Francesca Gino fired by Harvard Business School based on allegations from three other professors that she had faked data for a number of her studies, including including... including study about honesty. Uh, which uh, got a lot of press pickup, fraudulence in honesty research. Anyway, Professor Gino is now suing. She's suing Harvard. She's suing certain personnel at Harvard, and she's suing these three professors at other schools who wrote this original blog post accusing her of academic dishonesty. Ken and I talk about the strength of her lawsuit, which Ken thinks actually will survive a motion to dismiss. So we may see some interesting litigation around these questions about whether uh, she or you know, maybe people working with her uh, were lying in the production of this research about honesty. So if you want to hear that whole conversation, um, I encourage you to stop this tape right now. Go to serioustrouble.show and upgrade to become a full-paying subscriber. For $6 a month or $60 a year, you'll get that full episode, and you'll get every full episode we produce. That's more than 40 episodes a year. We actually did 49 episodes in our first year. Uh, we're now into year two. Um, but anyway, uh, I hope you'll go upgrade. You can join our comments section, the very interesting discussions that occur after every episode that comes out. We'd love to have you there, and thanks. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, it's been an active week. Uh, or an act several days. Uh, we, uh, I guess we last recorded this show five days ago uh, in two different federal proceedings uh, in which Donald Trump is the defendant. Why don't we start with the proceedings in Washington, D.C. before Judge Tanya Chutkin? This is over the newest indictment uh, for uh, essentially trying to steal the election.
1: It's very early days in that one, obviously, Josh, but there's uh, already uh, a surprising amount of activity and uh, uh, the parties seem very anxious. Mm-hmm. So currently, they're fighting over a protective order. And first, can you explain what
0: a protective order is? Because a lot of people have been describing this as a gag order, which I think is not quite the right way to describe it.
1: Right. So a protective order is something that governs how discovery produced in a case can be used and disclosed. So absent a protective order, you're free to just, if you get something in discovery from the other side in a civil or criminal case, uh, to give it to the paper, publish it, put it on your blog, whatever. A protective order basically governs how you can use or disclose things that you've gotten in discovery in a civil or criminal case. It's become um, standard procedure for the feds, for assistant U.S. attorneys in criminal cases, to ask for and often get very broad protective orders uh, saying, oh, no, well, if, we, if you turn over the discovery to you that we're constitutionally obligated to do, uh, you, you know, you can't disclose it to the public or use it. And the courts have taken a, a relatively permissive
0: view on that, right? It's, it's very difficult to get a gag order on a defendant that restricts the way that they may talk about their case, um, but it's much easier to get an order that restricts the way that they can disseminate this information that they've been given in discovery.
1: Yes. In my opinion, this is an area where the widely held practice is of dubious legality and the important issues aren't actually litigated very much. So I think that the law doesn't support judges imposing a broad protective order telling you you can't use discovery, you can't disclose it to the public, unless there are specific facts and a specific showing of need, yet uh, the general practice is either to sort of tell defendants, oh, well, sign this protective order stipulation and you're not getting discovery or getting the judge to issue one, frankly, I think without too much thought or reflection. On the constitutional issues involved. So, yeah, it's an end of rant, but that's kind of where we are, uh, that, that it's often done, not necessarily often carefully thought about.
0: So basically the thing that Trump and his attorneys are so upset about in this proposed protective order, if it's unfair to him, it's unfair in a way that is routinely unfair to all kinds of criminal defendants.
1: Yes, although I think mostly uh, in typical Trump fashion, they're concerned about how it's unfair to him, right. This started to unfold with the government you know filing something asking for a protective order and saying we need to give him discovery, but we can't yet because look at how he's acting on social media and and this was after his uh, truth social post to the effect of, if you know, if you come after me, I come after you. Mm -hmm. And the government's position was, so, uh, well, you know, if he's doing this, just imagine what he's going to do with all the sensitive information we're going to turn over with grand jury information, interviews with witnesses. He's going to use social media to go after these people and disclose Confidential uh, information. So Trump's team first whined a little bit, uh, said, We need more time to respond to this. Judge, give us at least a week to talk about the important issues. And uh, the government was. Kind of snarky in return. They filed something on the weekend saying basically, you know, dude, in the time you wasted whining, you could have actually given a substantive opposition. And the judge, uh, in I think a preview of what's going to happen— Uh, in this case, said, I'm not going to give you a lot more time. Uh, It's Sunday, and I'm going to give you to close the business on Monday. Trump's lawyer, John Lauro, one of of the attorneys
0: who wanted more time here, he did a full Ginsburg on Sunday, which is uh, named after uh, Monica Lewinsky's one-time lawyer, uh, Bill Ginsburg, who, if you appear on all five Sunday shows on the same day, that is called a full Ginsburg. Uh, and so John Lauro <laughs> managed that on Sunday. Congratulations, John Lauro! But I think that that was a sign that he really did have time to respond to the
1: court's uh, request by Monday. Well, yeah. I mean, he could have just done it on his laptop from all those green rooms. <laughs> um, but it's important, actually, Josh. It's not uh, just laughing at him. That turns out to be important, as we'll see in a minute. So Trump files his opposition to this protective order request on Monday. And um, I will admit to being surprised, a lot of it is pretty good. Uh-huh. So he files something laying out what I just said that, you know, actually, there are laws and First Amendment considerations and cases saying that you're not just supposed to rubber stamp whatever the government asks for in a protective order. And then it's improper just to do a blanket protective order without some sort of showing of particularized need, without a real basis as opposed to just, we don't like defendants revealing things. And a lot of that is well done. Um, some people are making fun of it, and I think it's misguided. So for instance, one of the points Trump's lawyers made in the brief, which which I thought was, again, surprisingly well done and temperate for a Trump brief, it showed a, uh, a tweet by President Biden where he's holding a cup of coffee and saying nothing like a good old cup of joe on a day like today. And it was the day of Trump's indictment. It was clearly making fun of Trump for being indicted. And Trump's point was, hey, I'm going to be running against the president of the United States. He can talk about my indictment on social media. And you're going to tell me I can't talk about my indictment on social media? So It's a fair point.
0: But they're not telling him he can't talk about the indictment, right? They're telling him that he can't use the materials that were disclosed to him in discovery in order to talk about the indictment. Those are presumably materials that Joe Biden is not in possession
1: of. But it's not just that he can't use the materials. He also can't use information derived from them. So the breadth of the protective order uh, that the government was asking for, and this is typical, would make it very difficult for him to talk about the case say that the evidence against me is wrong, say something like, hey, I just discovered that it's clear that one of the uh, witnesses uh, against me changed their story three times. He wouldn't be able to do that under the proposed protective order because that's material derived from the stuff the government's giving him in discovery. But Trump, in typical fashion, overreached a little bit. Well, maybe not a little bit. He, His lawyers suggested edits to the government's protective order, and, and the edits they did were as aggressive as the government's request, and it, it – pretty much suggested to the judge, which is something you don't want to do, that he really wanted to be using all this stuff in the media. And then he was really anxious too. So the government's reply came back and pointed that out and also pointed out things like uh, Trump's lawyers, full Ginsburg and, and all the things they've been saying in the media, suggesting they're super eager to start using discovery to attack the government and its witnesses and its case. Now, honestly... I think that it's arguable that you shouldn't be able to prevent the defendant from attacking the government and its witnesses and its case with stuff produced in Discovery unless there are specific – privacy or security or other concerns. I mean, saying th- the government is full of shit in its allegations against me seems to me to be a very fundamental part of the First Amendment. Uh, but uh, Trump is kind of the, the worst possible uh, spokesperson for the proposition, hey, there's nothing wrong with uh, talking about uh, your case. What's so terrible about The defendant trying to litigate
0: the case in the media? I mean, it seems like there's a First Amendment right there. I mean, I know one of the things the government focuses on is that just because evidence is produced in discovery doesn't mean that it will be admissible in the trial. And so they're concerned about that that Trump might reveal things that that would never be revealed at the trial because they wouldn't be admissible in the trial. And essentially, therefore, he will poison the jury pool by causing them to know information that they otherwise wouldn't know. Um, That strikes me as a more... Theoretical concern here when you have a case about such high profile facts that the jury pool likely already knows all sorts of stuff that might not be admitted at trial. Um, But I, I guess
1: that's one of the government's key concerns. I think there are three classic concerns here. One is what you said, the jury pool concern, that you're going to taint the jury pool. I don't think that's plausible in this case. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't already consume Trump news nearly 24-7 and who doesn't already have a strong opinion. The other two concerns are more realistic. One is that the defendant is going to release confidential information or information that can be used to identify and locate witnesses and abuse them. And I think that's a genuine legitimate concern for Trump, who I think routinely sends his droogs out after people, uh, and that it's mostly luck that there have been relatively few incidences of people like, you know, the armed guy showing up at Barack Obama's house after he publishes the address. Then there's the idea that he's going to use the information to harass, intimidate, and threaten witnesses, which is something I think we'll talk about more in the context of a gag order, which again, I think with Trump is a plausible concern.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, before before we get to that, let's talk about what Judge Chuckin is likely to do. Uh, so she's been briefed by both sides about what kind of protective order she might issue. You say no, it's common for the judge to basically just rubber stamp the prosecution's request on that? Would you expect her to do that here? And and if she does, would you expect
1: Trump to immediately appeal it? Uh, so it is common for judges, federal judges, to rubber stamp federal prosecutor requests on this and on many other issues, but particularly on procedural things like this. It's rarely reviewed by courts of appeal. I, I was working To prepare for this and also to write a post about this. And uh, there is surprisingly little directly on point authority because it's rare for someone to challenge the judge on this and to appeal it, Uh, in part because I think you don't want – many people think they don't want to piss off the judge that uh, that the, that the uh, it's not worth it. Uh, it's It's not clear that you can immediately appeal a protective order, but he could take an extraordinary writ or something like that to the Court of Appeals. And I think that uh, he likely will because Trump very much wants to frame this as you know, him being persecuted and also make it a first Amendment battle rather than a battle than him, you know, trying to overthrow the government. Well, but I and the other thing I think he wants is to is to delay these
0: proceedings. I mean, I thought it was interesting. You know, they asked for more time to respond to this. And Judge Chuck and very quickly was like, no. Uh, One thing you noted is that she said that she's going to set a trial date at the next hearing,
1: which is unusual. Normally, you would wait longer than that. Not unusual. Uh, some judge, it, it, it's very much a local practice and individual practice thing so Some judges have a trial date automatically set at the person's arraignment uh, by computer. In effect, some judges wait a while. It's, it's very much a, a different practice. But she's already set a hearing on these dueling protective order briefs. There's every indication that she intends to move this along promptly. And I I don't know, a lot of people are are interpreting this either in in Trumpist mode as she has it out for him, she's gunning for him, or in resistance wish casting mode as finally someone who's going to hold him to account. I read it as just she runs a professional courtroom and she wants things to move along at a good pace.
0: Right. But I mean, the, that pacing is the difference between a trial that occurs before the election and a trial that occurs after the election or potentially it makes that, that difference. And since I assume Trump would much prefer not to go on trial before Election Day, doesn't it make sense for him to do things like appeal her ruling on the protective order, you know, whatever motions they can file that might slow, slow this down? Sure.
1: Although, uh, again, taking a an extraordinary writ to the D.C. Circuit I don't think would slow things down. Only direct appeals that give you a right to a direct appeal that halts proceedings in the trial court really slow things down. So— well, Unless uh, the
0: appeals court grants the extraordinary writ,
1: right? Well, even then, they would have to not only grant the writ but grant some sort of stay while it's being discussed. And that wouldn't be typical for a collateral issue.
0: Okay. Let's talk about Mike Pence, because another thing that Trump has been doing in the last few days has been posting on Truth Social about Mike Pence, who's likely to be a key witness against him in this trial. To read some of it, it's, you know, he said things like, wow, it finally happened. Little Mike Pence, a man who was about to be ousted as governor of Indiana until I came along and made him VP, has gone to the dark side. I never trolled a newly emboldened Pence to put me above the Constitution or that Mike was too honest. So this is commentary about a witness and a witness's likely statements in the trial. Trump called Mike Pence delusional. And speaking of delusional, there's a lot of people out there who are talking about the idea that, like, Trump is going to get himself held in contempt of court for talking about a witness like this, uh, that he might be jailed pending trial because it's so unacceptable to talk about a witness in your case like this. Is Trump running afoul of anything by talking about Mike Pence
1: in this way? Potentially, but it's early days. So to respond to your question, there's something going on right now, and it's always been going along as long as you and I have been doing podcasts together. And that's sort of like wish casting and, and even grifting by some people playing on the hopes and dreams of the American public of getting rid of Trump. It is absolutely in the middle of a huge surge. People telling everyone what they want to hear about how they finally got Trump now. And this one weird legal trick is going to finally end this all and put him in jail. You got to consume all that carefully. Uh, there's a lot of nonsense in the air right now, both from Trump supporters and from Trump detractors. That's probably one of them. First of all, I'm going to argue with you a little bit, Josh. It's not completely clear to me that the Trump true social thing about Pence was about his status as a witness in this case at all. It immediately followed Pence making some public comments out on the campaign trail where he boasted to the best of his modest ability that, you know, oh, yeah, Trump wanted me to throw out the Constitution for his benefit, but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't.
0: Pence said he, he didn't listen to Trump's gaggle of crackpot lawyers wanted him to do that
1: that's just rude okay <laughs> gaggle of crackpot lawyers is just rude the, the correct term is federalist society um <laughs> but uh i think trump was actually responding to that uh based what's, on the what's timing. the collective noun for is it an accordion file of attorneys <laughs> that that would be accurate although i think now it's a drop box of attorneys um so can threats to a witness in your case be a new crime absolutely So, the classic cases are about people saying on Facebook to your witness, hey, snitches get stitches. Okay, that's an unequivocal threat. That's probably a true threat under First Amendment analysis. That will get you charged with a crime separately vague, just shit-talking about a witness, it's going to be a lot harder to show that's an independent crime, especially when you've got this unique circumstance when, oh, by the way, the person you're shit-talking is your nominal opponent for the the nomination for GOP candidate for president. I mean, that's core political speech. Other ways he could get—I haven't seen anything he said about Pence or any witness that comes anywhere— in the same universe as true threats, not even remotely close. Now, but there are other areas where you can get trouble, and that's if the judge puts some sort of condition on you as a condition of your release, of your bail, or if the judge issues a gag order stop talking about the trial. Those are cloudier. Once again, this is something that judges often do, but is not reviewed by appellate courts very often for a First Amendment analysis. And so I think there's a lot of use of gag orders and pretrial conditions that wouldn't meet a serious First Amendment analysis. Just as an example, I went through and I tried to find in how many cases have federal courts analyzed this the standard bail condition, don't talk to any witnesses and asked whether that violates the First Amendment. And it's like three, Uh, and that's extraordinary. So I think that it would not be unusual for uh, the judge to impose some sort of condition that Trump not talk to any witnesses. She may go further and say not talk about, about any witnesses or do some sort of gag order of the case. And that's when we'll get action, because here you have a highly motivated litigant with assets, with lawyers who are able to the best of their ability to litigate First Amendment issues, who doesn't care about pissing off the judge. So this is the kind of weird case that will actually produce legal analysis about what, what judges can or can't do. And who also has an unusually
0: strong argument that to be able to talk about and even to the witnesses is important political speech. I mean, taken literally, uh, Donald Trump is going to appear on a debate stage with Mike Pence. Right, right. Is he violating that order if he addresses Mike Pence during a debate?
1: I mean, he has a plausible argument that he's in fear that he's going to violate that that order, and that's why he should be able to challenge the order. That's an excellent example of exactly how the order is overbroad, at least applied to him. Although I think a lot of the things Trump wants to do are awful, I don't think it's awful that him being the defendant here and being willing to litigate things could result in some clear law about what judges can or can't do to restrict defendant speech. Well, so he's he's already been ordered not to talk to witnesses in this case. And that's not even
0: unequivocally constitutional. Right. There hasn't been a broader gag order. Not yet. And am I right to think that Judge Chuckin is unlikely to issue one because she wouldn't want to invite exactly that contest over whether it's legal or constitutional for her to order a broad gag order?
1: Uh, Yes, I think you are right. I think she's more in the no-nonsense judge mode as opposed to the uh, how dare you thwart my iron will federal judge mode. Uh, so I think she, despite all the wish casting about how she's going to lower the boom on Trump and issue orders so that he can't say things, I, I think she's too smart for that.
0: We've gotten a lot of feedback over the last few days about our discussion of intent in this case, and specifically whether the government will need to prove that Donald Trump knew he lost the 2020 election at the time that he asked for the presidency to be awarded to him again. And so I guess, can we just do a a clearer analysis of that? What exactly is the government going to have to show here about his mental state?
1: Sure. Uh, I mean, let's point out, Josh, that we did the last podcast about the indictment like two hours after it dropped. So, right. Uh, <laughs> all right. So the first claim is a, a Title 18, Section 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States. So for that, the mental state they have to show is that he joined an agreement to defraud the United States, intending to help carry out that agreement. So that requires a mental state that he intended to help defraud, that is, say false things to, in order to create some sort of change, the federal government. Um, The two obstruction counts require corrupt intent, uh, which means he intended to wrongfully submit false information uh, with the intent to do wrong. It's kind of a an, uh, corrupt is sort of an old timey type of uh, notion that's a little vague, but it's clear he has to know he's doing wrong and intending to do wrong. And then finally, the, the conspiracy to violate civil rights is he has to intend to impair willfully, knowingly, intentionally impair the rights of those voters he's trying to disenfranchise. hmm So in terms of what that means, in terms of whether he has to know that he lost, I mean, to some extent, that's kind of shorthand for what he has to know. So technically, he could sincerely believe that he won, but know that the particular evidence he is submitting in support of that proposition is fraudulent. So, for instance, if he sincerely believes he won, but he knows that there were no 10,000 dead people voting in Georgia and that's made up and that when he's pushing that and and submitting things based on it, that's false, then then that could satisfy the intent. Similarly, I think in theory... He could think that he won, but know that the slates of alternate electors uh, he is causing to be submitted are completely bogus and not real electors at all, and so forth. That's technically right. But, and I think you and I disagree a little on this, that's not the type of right, technically right, that prosecutors like to argue to a jury. So sort of this concept that yeah, he thought he won. He he truly believed he won, but the methods he used to argue that were deceitful. I think federal prosecutors don't like making that type of argument. Before we get into that, I, I want to clarify one thing because people talk
0: about this idea that either he he truly believed that he won, or he knew that he lost, or that you know he truly believed that there were. 10,000 dead voters in Georgia or he knew that there weren't. But there's, there's an in-between possibility, which is that he spoke with disregard for whether those claims were true or not, that he, he believed that he won and therefore he caused the government to be told various things that he knew he didn't know. That you know, Some evidence came in and he didn't even care to look at whether or not it was true. He felt it supported his argument that the election was stolen from him. And he advanced these claims without ever looking into whether they were specifically true or not. Can that also meet the requirement if he's saying things to the government without regard for
1: whether they're true or false? So there's a doctrine in federal law called deliberate ignorance. So if a defendant basically – contrives not to know not to learn things uh, then you can treat them as if they knew them Mm -hmm. Uh, so but that's different than simply not accepting something so it's more like Josh if I tell you this envelope has all the evidence that what we said on last week's show it was wrong and we should retract it and you say I'm not going to open that uh, envelope Ken that's deliberate ignorance I'm not sure that what Trump is doing where people are repeatedly saying things to him and he's just ignoring it is deliberate ignorance. I think that's closer to uh you know that's something for the jury to work out as to what his intent really is.
0: Well I I mean more when, you know, fantastical claims of uh vote fraud come into him that his immediate reaction is to just, you know, to share them far and wide without looking into whether they're true or not. That he, you know, he, all he's interested in is the result. Uh, and even saying to the Justice Department, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. It's indicative of a of a desire to reach a particular outcome without looking at all into whether the, you know, the, the specific
1: claims that you're making to argue for that outcome are true or false. Sure. That could be deliberate ignorance as well. When When you have reasons that people are telling you to question whether something is, is true and you deliberately look aside from them and don't pursue them. Like when you know, the indictment describes him talking to officials in Georgia and raising some crazy story he's heard and they say, well, actually, that's not true. I can give you a link. And he says, I don't care about the link. Uh, so yes, that can be deliberate ignorance. You have to be really careful with the deliberate ignorance Theory, Because if you get the judge to give the instruction, it can be reversible error if the court of appeals decides it wasn't the right situation. Uh, Basically, saying that someone had actual knowledge is inconsistent with saying they were deliberately ignorant of it. So it's complicated. uh, But it it is a theory. Right. So –
0: You were saying that you don't think the government would want to argue this because it's too complicated to basically tell a jury that, you know, even even if Donald Trump believed that he won the election, um, that he knew that this elector slate was invalid. This was not the real certified elector slate from the state of Georgia or whatever. And therefore, he committed fraud on the government, even if he believed that it was going to produce the correct outcome in terms of the presidential election. That doesn't seem
1: that complicated to me. Maybe complicated is the wrong word. Maybe unappealing is the word I should use, because I think juries often like to feel that they're doing substantive justice. And despite being nominally bound by the legal instructions the judge gives them, juries often, in effect, try to do equity. They try to come out to what they feel in their gut is the right result. And because of that, I think that federal prosecutors... Uh, don't particularly like uh, the, yes, uh, he was technically doing it for good reasons, but he did it the wrong way type of argument. Can I tell you a short story that illustrates what I mean? Sure. So like 25 years ago, I prosecuted a bank robber. And this guy was a sad sack who had just gotten in a motorcycle accident the prior month, been badly injured, lost his job, got a settlement from the insurance company, deposited his bank, He goes home one day after being fired from work, and his girlfriend is dumping him, kicking him out of the apartment. So he goes to the bank, and he says, I need to withdraw some of my settlement money. And they say, oh, we're sorry, there's still a 10-day hold on that money. And so our friend loses it. He says, well, did I mention I have a bomb? This is a robbery. Give me my money. Mm -hmm. And he leaves his driver's license at the counter, He takes the drawer full of money that was far less than what he had in the bank, and he goes and he sits in the parking lot and he cries until the police arrest him. Mm -hmm. Jury went 11 to 1 to acquit on that Hmm. uh, for bank robbery because, as the defense lawyer said, it was his money. He just wanted his money. He wanted the, the right, the just result. And yes, okay, he shouldn't have done that, but that's not bank robbery. And I think federal prosecutors understand that juries react to things that way. And they're worried that leaning into this idea, you know, accepting the proposition that Trump thought he had won, but he, he went about vindicating that the wrong way, is just going to at least play into the hearts of one or two jurors who might hang the jury.
0: Okay, but let's, let's put this back in the real world context where it is, which is to say this is a trial that will occur in the District of Columbia, likely an extremely heavily Democratic jury pool. The January 6th riot happened in their backyard. This was not merely national news for them. This was an event in the city where they live. And I don't think that they're likely to enter from a position of sympathy toward Donald Trump. And so I'm imagining more a jury that is looking for ways to get to guilty. And if one of the key defenses from Trump is, you know, uh, you know, I sincerely believed that the election had been stolen from me and, you know, whatever, I can't have had corrupt intent, fraudulent intent, because I was trying to vindicate what I saw as the truth. This basically, it it gives the jury an opportunity. to say You can say to them that, you know, either he knew or he really believed that, but he still chose to tell lies on his way to trying to vindicate what he thought was the truth. And that makes it still a crime
1: either way. Isn't that
0: giving the jury permission to convict?
1: Yes, but remember, you only need one to hang a jury. And as blue as DC is, uh, there are red people in Washington, DC. And there are also lots of weirdos uh, who will hang juries for weird things that only make sense in their heads. Also, the evidence here that Trump knew that things he was saying were false and that he lost the election, I think, is so good that you don't necessarily want to give much ground to that theory. I mean there's all there's this stuff like saying depends your problem is you're too honest. It's a great piece of evidence. So uh, the way federal prosecutors try cases, I think they're going to lean into that and really not indulge uh, sort of the alternate uh, theory of the case very much and of course Josh you are assuming that we're gonna stay in DC I mean after all Trump's <laughs> lawyers said on TV that we should go some someplace truly diverse like West Virginia you know which which I believe is diverse in the sense that you have states that have black people and then you have West Virginia which is diversely does not um, so uh, West Virginia with like a 93 percent rate of, uh, of white people so mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure they're going to be asking for a change of venue. They're not going to get it, but uh, I'm Mm -hmm. sure they'll ask. And so that's just that there's no right to a change of
0: venue based on the political makeup of the jury, even if you are... I mean, Trump is not the first politician
1: to be tried. He is not. The, the, The test for change of venue is somewhat discretionary with the court, but highly unfavorable to the party making it, and it has to be... It's usually based on extreme saturation in the particular venue of negative publicity to the extent it's impossible to get a fair trial. And uh, the the problem for Trump is that everywhere is saturated with publicity in America. There is no untouched jurisdiction. So, uh, no, it's not a strong argument for him. There's been a lot of commentary,
0: especially from conservatives, about this indictment and about the allegedly creative nature of the charging here and often, often placing it in contrast to the documents indictment in Florida, which is pretty legally straightforward in most people's opinion that, you know, he wasn't allowed to have those documents, and he kept them. Here, there's this idea that this is a creative use of the fraud on the U.S. statute; that it's a creative use of this statute about deprivation of civil rights. And we talked some about that civil rights thing about how you know people think of that as being a law about you know if the if the Klan you know violently attacks a polling place to stop black people from voting, this the deprivation of civil rights statute makes that a federal crime. Um, but it's also, as we discussed, it's been used on a long line of cases about ballot box stuffing and other kinds of vote fraud, where if you fraudulently alter the result of an election, you have deprived the real voters of their civil right to vote. That is not actually a novel prosecutorial theory, even if it's not the one that people would first think of when thinking about that statute. I want to talk some about the fraud statute because I brought up the McDonald case last time. Uh, different fraud statutes, the wire fraud uh, and uh, mail fraud statutes, have a requirement that uh, fraud has to be uh, for the purpose of obtaining money or property. Uh, and There's been a legislative history with trying to also apply those, uh, those statutes to theft of honest services, basically the idea that you were paid to do a job and you did something else, that that could be fraud. And The Supreme Court has looked very negatively on that idea, has basically said that's too vague. Um, And so National Review ran an editorial and a follow-up article from Andy McCarthy, who's a former prosecutor who writes for them, basically saying that in line with the McDonald case, that the federal government is – that the federal prosecutors here are trying to be so creative, too creative using this fraud statute uh, for something that, that the fraud statute is not really supposed to be about. That this wasn't an effort to obtain money or property and therefore that you can't charge Trump with fraud here, that you're trying to criminalize political activity. And they're just, they're just misreading the law here is my understanding. They're looking at a different statute that says a different thing. Trump is not charged under the mail fraud or, or wire fraud statutes where that, that would be a very real issue.
1: Yes. So you are being gentlemanly and charitable and saying they're misreading. I'm being ungentlemanly and uncharitable and saying they're lying. Uh, so, yeah, they, they are at the National Review, they are claiming that that Section 371, which again is, is – a statute that both has the plain vanilla federal conspiracy language, where it's a crime to conspire to violate a federal law used all the time, and also the somewhat less used language about conspiring to defraud the United States. Now, for a 100 years, the Supreme Court and lower courts have said conspiring to defraud the United States under the statute doesn't have to be to get money or property. It can be to sort of derail government processes. It can be to interfere with the operation of the government, which is very much uh, a reasonable description of what Trump was trying to do here. Uh, What the National Review and other conservative commentators have done is look at commentary on other statutes. So like you said, the mail and wire fraud statutes, those are statutes about defrauding anybody, not just the government, but anybody. And they say in their text, this has to be for money or property. And uh, for many years, courts had sort of said, yeah, it says that, but we kind of feel like it should also include the right to honest services or intangible things like that. And the Supreme Court has said, no, 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 that's not what it says. We got to cut back on that. But in doing so, they have not narrowed 371. In fact, they have endorsed the idea that um, 371 has a broader read because it's not about uh, defrauding just anybody. It's specifically about defrauding the federal government. So, you know, the, the National Review quotes this case called McNally, which is the Supreme Court case in 87, where the court said no, no, mail and wire fraud, that's not, it, it's, it doesn't count if you say that you someone of the right to honest services, this intangible right to good government. That's not money or property, no joy. And so the National Review points to that and says, see, this shows why the Trump charge is wrong. Except McNally has a footnote that says, oh, 371, that's different. We've always said 371 can be Things like derailing government operations. But that's different because it's only about the government and that statute doesn't have this language in it. So the case, moreover, the the big theory the National Review is, is pushing here that 371 is too vague if it's used this way, that it should be narrowed, all of this. The only federal court of appeal to consider that argument has shot it down, said, no, that's wrong. So I don't have a problem with anyone arguing about what the law should be, and I don't have a problem with the argument that 371, as it's understood, is too vague and ambiguous and that that's dangerous and that it could lead us down a bad road of constantly going after our political opponents. It's a perfectly legitimate argument. But to me, I don't think legal commentators should mislead their public about what the law is, about the way the court currently interprets it. And uh, the people saying that 371 doesn't reach this far under current law are absolutely unequivocally wrong. Mm -hmm. You were
0: describing that as being sort of Dershowitzian, where Alan Dershowitz will very frequently issue very confident proclamations of what the law is. And they are based on arguments that Alan Dershowitz would make before the Supreme Court about how the law ought to be interpreted that are, not, that are often not actually in line with the way that the court has ruled in the past. And so I guess, you know, I mean, could this end up with, you know, if Trump is convicted, could we end up before the Supreme Court with those sorts of arguments that I, I think you're saying those arguments aren't crazy, even if the court, you know, hasn't demonstrated a prior willingness to go for those arguments? Could that end up being litigated
1: before the Supreme Court with this as, as the key case? Absolutely it could. The Supreme Court changes and reconsiders things all the time. It does so particularly in times of sort of turmoil and change, like we're going through right now. But the point is, to date, courts have considered their arguments and have rejected them, and no court has accepted them. So I I think you need to explain that when you're talking about this, because part of their reason for saying these things is not just, oh, here's why we think the charges." are going to fail eventually. The reason they're doing this is to say Jack Smith is corrupt and persecuting Trump and wrongfully bringing bad charges. In other words, they're using this argument in service of a theory that this is a illegitimate prosecution. And that's a lie.
0: Speaking of nonsense... The Washington Post published analysis by Philip Bump under the headline, Is Trump Going to Jail? Here's How Much Prison Time He Could Face. And there's even an infographic going with this, this sort of snake-like thing, showing the 641 years that Donald Trump potentially faces in prison as a result of all of the various things that he has been indicted for. And so, I mean, obviously he won't go to jail for 641 years because he's not going to live that long. Are there other reasons that this analysis might be incorrect?
1: Sure. And uh, I'll say that Philip Bump feels that I have badly wronged him by criticizing this column in this way. Uh, he's, He's a sensitive soul. The column is set up nominally, to say, oh, there's this narrative, but it's false. So Philip Bump's stance is, oh, I'm saying that this isn't true. But in my view, he's doing something that's called privileging the lie. He's setting (laughs) up this wrong thing, discussing it at length, and then coming in and half-assing the rebuttal at the end. So even though he concedes at the end that, oh, actually, no, Trump's not going to face 621 years in jail, that's wrong. He has them do an infographic, showing this candy land path of getting to 621 years. 641. 41, and he makes it prominent in the piece. So the reasons Trump is not getting all those years is that, as we talk about frequently— Federal sentencing is governed by the, the federal sentencing guidelines. Even though they're not mandatory, they are reliably sort of the heartland of where sentences add up. In white-collar cases, sentences are almost always below what the guideline recommends and not above. There's very unlikely that a 78- Sorry, al- almost always below the guideline, or do you mean
0: if there's a deviation, it's almost always—
1: Downward Almost always it. below the guideline in white-collar oh, really? cases. Okay. I mean, Josh, if we look back at all the white-collar cases you and I have covered, the Avenatti's, the the Michael Cohen's, uh, the, all these Trump-related miscreants, uh, all of them got below-guideline sentences uh, for white-collar crime, and that's common. And normally, as a criminal defense attorney, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so, But the bottom line is that the guidelines here – uh, the most aggressive calculations, like Mitch Eppner, a friend of the show, did one, are like in the eight-year range for the DC case, and in the you know the ten or so year range in the Florida case. They're they're nowhere plausibly near any of the big numbers, as in any case. So my quarrel with Phil Bumps' column is that he only kind of does a hand wave of that and provides the readers with no useful information to explain. Well, why isn't it going to be 641 years?
0: Yeah. I mean, his, his explanation at the end when he's saying it's probably not going to be this is not even correct. No, it's not. I mean, he offers some reasons why it might not be 641. Like, you know, he might not be convicted on every single count. He also says the total assumes that Trump would receive the maximum sentence for each guilty verdict. That too is unlikely. People convicted of crimes often receive lighter sentences. Which, I mean, it, it's not even acknowledging the existence of the sentencing guidelines. He's merely saying that sometimes you don't get the maximum, but that's like, that's not even close to describing how sentencing works.
1: No, the, the often there is is so useless to be deceptive. Uh, it's like saying, Ken often buys lottery tickets, but often doesn't win the billion dollar <laughs> lottery. Oh, Well, yeah, technically, I guess that's true, but it's not very informative, yeah. is it? Right. Yeah.
0: And, and at the end, he says, so why is Trump suggesting he'll be in prison for more than 500 years? Because it's dramatic, because his, his audience, primed to view the indictments as illegitimate, will see that number and think the government is being intentionally punitive. And it reinforces this idea that, that this is about making Trump pay for being Trump instead of being a response to his actions, which, you know, is fine. But the thing is also like, the, frankly, the intended audience for this article, why are people talking about the idea that Trump would get 500 years? Because there's a lot of people who hate Donald Trump, Who just like to like close their eyes and imagine the idea of Donald Trump being sentenced to rotten jail for the rest of his life. And so there's a market for these stories about these high numbers, which is why you produce a graphic like this showing the uh,
1: 641 years. Well, absolutely. Um, But it's not informative. It's not. The big numbers, the maximum numbers uh, are just a sort of nerdy expression of the classic, if it bleeds, it leads. For the media, big, splashy, long numbers attract attention, and it 's good business for the media, and so they they push that junk because it 's clickbait of course, if Trump is
0: going to get those six hundred and forty one years, that requires him to be convicted on every count, which would include the Florida case and I think we saw in the, the, the federal case in Florida, the one before Judge Eileen Cannon, the first sort of spicy order that came down from Judge Cannon this week. Uh, That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. If you want to hear the rest of our conversation, if you want to hear our discussion about Judge Eileen Cannon and whether she has it out for federal prosecutors down in Florida, if you want to hear our discussion about Data Collada uh, and the academic dishonesty dispute at Harvard that has now spiraled into a $25 million defamation lawsuit, uh, I encourage you, go to serioustrouble.show. You can become a paying subscriber, and then you'll get that full episode. You'll hear those conversations, and you'll get every full episode that we produce. That's more than 40 episodes a year, nearly 50 episodes in our first year. Um, You'll get to join our comments section, and you'll be helping to make this show possible. It is financial support from listeners like you that makes it possible for Ken and Sarah and me to get together every week and make this podcast for you. So I encourage you, if you're interested in that, go upgrade, and we'll see you soon.